References to solidarity are currently on the increase in public discourse. In the UK and beyond, during economic crisis and in a political climate where many feel that mutual assistance has lost currency, calls for a new and forceful emphasis on the meaning of solidarity are increasingly heard. Such appeals to solidarity are inevitably linked to ideas about how societies function and about how and where the boundary between individual, familial, communal and societal spheres of responsibility should be drawn. Hey there, I'm just reading this very interesting report entitled Solidarity Reflections on an Emerging Concept in Bioethics, written by Barbara Prinsek and Alina Buchs. Because for today's episode of the Europe Talk Solidarity podcast, I am talking to Professor Barbara Prinsek, a political scientist at the University of Vienna. Together, we are going to explore the role of solidarity in health and bioethics. Welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Thank you very much for inviting me. It is a pleasure. For our listeners to picture you, can I ask you to describe yourself? So I think part of the answer is already that this question makes me a bit uncomfortable because I don't normally like to talk about myself so much, but more about my work. But I'll take this as a challenge, as a productive challenge. I can tell you where I am now. <laughs> And so I'm now in the bedroom of a small rented flat in Canberra. I'm wearing sort of spring or autumn clothes because the Canberra summer at the moment is not very warm, to put it mildly. And I'm overlooking the bushlands, which puts me in a very good mood. I, I really love it. For me, it's exotic coming from Central Europe. Um, but I also think it's very, very interesting and beautiful. And I learn a lot about nature here. I like how you diverted the question and told me more about your surroundings. <laughs> It is a challenging exercise and I've been called out by our listeners recently. I've asked the question to all of the 21 guests we've had so far and never described myself in return. And to be honest with you, it feels strange to do this in middle of season two, but it's always a good time for us to get to know each other, right? <laughs> well. My name is Diogo, Diogo Pires, but that you already know. I'm a radio host and an entrepreneur from Lisbon in Portugal, and I do love to know people and their stories. That's, for me, for sure, the most fascinating thing of living in this world. That's why this podcast is a blessing for me, getting to know amazing people whose stories always come from a solidarity place. We can see the good this world has to give. Well, Barbara, going back to you, you are currently on a sabbatical in Australia. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. As part of it, you have spent time at the Centre for Healthy Society in Sydney, where you are an international partner. I'm curious to know what brought you on that path. How did you become a political scientist that studies the regulatory, social and ethical dimensions of bioscience, biomedicine and forensics? When I was a child, I wanted to do various things. I wanted to become a researcher 
an Egyptologist. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist at some point. I loved writing. Um, I also wanted to be a teacher, but that didn't last for so long. I tried ver various work experiences. Barbara studied political science. Her PhD was about the regulation of embryonic stem cell research. Her research connected policymaking with technology and science, and since then she has always been combining those different and seemingly unrelated fields of research. In 2011, as a Solidarity Fellow for the Newfield Council on Bioethics, Barbara looked at how Solidarity has been used in bioethics. Many of the questions that I had been concerned with, and others, of course, they coalesce, they come together in this notion of solidarity. So, because solidarity means supporting others despite all the differences that exist, this is why solidarity speaks to questions such as who do we see as similar? Who do we see as different? Who teaches us those things? Why do I see you as like, as a person like me and another person not? So these are not objective things, right? These are things that we have learned to see as a similarity or as a difference. So those kinds of questions come together in solidarity, but also how do we create institutions that support people and especially the vulnerable? Um, how do we devise policies that don't play people out against each other? Actually, I think some of the pandemic management should have used more solidarity, which is a point that we made um, in the European Group on Ethics. Hmm. European Group on Ethics. Can you explain what that is? So the European Group on Ethics is a, a body that advises the European Commission on Ethics in Science and New Technologies. And we issued an um, opinion recently where we made this point. So I found that solidarity was bringing together many of the big questions. And this is why until this day, 12 years later, this is still the focus of my work. So I'm not only writing books and papers on solidarity, but everything I do, um, my my work, my also sort of my activism, because I write non-academic books as well, it always speaks to this notion of solidarity. Barbara, can you explain how you work on solidarity and bioethics? So bioethics has revolved, from, for many good and bad reasons, has revolved for a long time around individual needs and rights. And there are in bioethics also fields such as public health ethics. If one considers that as part of bioethics, I do. I use bioethics here as a broad label, um, but also communitarianist approaches that focus more on public goods and the public interest. And I think what solidarity helps us to do here is to avoid that we get into a kind of competition where we say, no, individual rights are more important. No, the public interest is more important. Um, solidarity, because it really focuses on how, on the interdependencies of people and on how people, despite being different, still see connectedness and, and, and support each other in some situations. Obviously, we need to explain how that happens because not everywhere where there are connections, there is solidarity, but solidarity does that. And by emphasizing, by drawing our attention to similarities, by drawing our attention to where some of the individual goods are also collective goods, 
it gets us out of this dichotomy between individual rights and common good and which one is more important or individual rights and public interest. To give you a, a practical example, privacy is understood by many as an individual right, and of course it is. It's a very important individual right, but it's also, and we tend to forget that, it's also an important collective good. So if you don't respect people's privacy, then something happens to society as a whole. And in fact, I mentioned that we did a, a study on solidarity in the pandemic, Barbara shares with me the example of the contact tracing apps that were wildly used during the COVID-19 pandemic and that fueled this debate about privacy. It turned out that um, many people, when they speak of privacy, they don't talk about their own individual data. It's not so much that they are worried about their own data, but they're more worried about what kind of society do we live in? What will happen to my my neighbor's son who um, who has an illegal job and, and doesn't pay taxes and somebody might find out via contact tracing that he goes there every day. So um, this is what people worried about. So it's very much both a collective and, and, and an individual concern. That's so interesting and so solidary, right? I never connected the privacy debate with solidarity before. Very often, what is good for individual people is also good for communities and for whole countries and regions. Solidarity can help us think about collective goods and individual rights and how they enforce each other without getting into this dichotomy between which trumps what. During COVID-19 pandemic, Barbara, together with her colleagues of the University of Vienna, as well as with other European partner organizations, did some research showing how the resistance that governments encountered towards their COVID-19 measures was linked to the narrow biomedical understanding of health that was used. An understanding that used only epidemiological and clinical metrics. People who felt, well, okay, maybe it helps to um, keep infection rates down for now, but our psychological health, our economic well-being... And our social well-being is really, our social health actually, is really um, neglected here. And I'm not saying that I would have done it better or that they are that they did this intentionally. I think this is a lesson learned from this ongoing pandemic that we really need to, and also public policymakers, need to consider health as something that has multiple dimensions that all interact. It doesn't make it easy, but it's, it's really important also to maintain and gain trust from the people. Now, Barbara, going back to the 2011 Newfield report, what I find striking is the way you define different layers of solidarity and their interconnectedness. Although solidarity is to be understood primarily as a shared practice or a cluster of such practices, reflecting a collective commitment, simply claiming that such practices exist, is unsatisfactory. The working definition, therefore, consists of three tiers, starting with a conceptualization of how individuals come to engage in practicing solidarity. They stand in hierarchy of institutionalization with the first tier at the interpersonal and most informal, 
and the third tier at the most formal legal level. Can you explain this further? Solidarity can take many forms and formats, but there are three main tiers. So the first one is this person-to-person -person solidarity. I see something in you that I recognize despite the many ways in which we are different. And if you struggle, if you need support, I give it to you. So that's person-to-person -person solidarity. And when this person-to-person -person solidarity becomes a normal practice in a group, for example, or in a community, then we have level two, tier two solidarity, group solidarity. And when such practices of support solidify into bureaucratic norms, contractual norms, institutions, policies, then we have tier three solidarity. So tier three solidarity is the only tier where solidarity can then also be enforced. Wait a minute. That seems new in our exploration of solidarity, right? Forcing people to be solidary. Can you explain that a bit further, Barbara? Tier one and two are, are voluntary. And tier three solidarity, I used healthcare as an example, um, can be enforced in the sense that in, in my country, for example, I have to pay contributions if I can, right? I cannot say, nah, I'll opt out. So that's the one instance where solidarity can actually be enforced because in many, in, in, when it comes to personal practice, a key characteristic of solidarity is that it cannot be, I think this is Jody Dean called it in these words. She used, Jody Dean used these words. She said, solidarity can only ever be appealed to, it cannot be demanded. So I cannot say to you, hey, um, okay, we are different, we're on different continents, we have different genders, but you owe me solidarity. That's not, I can appeal to your moral consciousness, I can say, okay, we're different, but see, climate change affects us all, let's work together. I can't demand it, except at the level of um, when it has become institutionalized, when we have solidaristic institutions like progressive taxation um, or healthcare or other systems of institutionalized mutual support where people contribute as they can and they receive as they need, then sometimes those uh, memberships in these solidaristic systems can be legally enforced. Barbara, you created the Center for Study of Contemporary Solidarity at the University of Vienna. Can you tell us more about that? So my professorship is not in solidarity studies. It's uh, in, in comparative policy analysis, but I didn't call my research group that because that's a pretty boring name. <laughs> I asked Barbara what they do at this center, and she told me about a white paper she and her colleagues recently published. It talks about data solidarity. That sounded abstract to me, until she explained. So, with our data solidarity work, we say in a nutshell the following. There are lots of benefits in the digital, emerging from digital data, and there are some costs. They are not distributed equally. So, how can we fix this problem? And this builds on, on, on work that I've, I've done over the last 10 years, where I argued that giving people more individual control over how their data is used is important, but it's not enough. So asking you whether you consent to X, Y, Z is sometimes very important, but it's not enough because it hasn't changed 
it hasn't helped to avoid the harms that have occurred. It hasn't avoided the concentration of power with tech corporations. It hasn't avoided that democratically we're losing control over some processes. You know, the more tech corporations are taking over public roles, the less democratic control we have. So what should we do in addition to, and this is what data solidarity says, in addition to giving people individual control, we also need to strengthen what we call collective instruments of oversight and control and ownership. Um, ownership not, not necessarily in, in a legal sense, but in a kind of moral sense. Data belong to the people and the communities that create the data. Ha! Here we address the other side of the privacy debate related to tracing apps, I guess. Something like, if I agree to provide apps, systems, and research with my data, I should benefit from the results of the exploitation and analysis of this data. Is that right? One important thing is that when data use can create public value and doesn't have high risks, then in some instances, it should get more support. Because sometimes, especially small charities, small universities who would do useful data work that could really have health benefits cannot go ahead. They don't have the time to get the permits. They can't get the hands on the data. So here, more public support would be ideal. Um, but where data use has bears very high risks, think of consumer profiling, for example, and it doesn't create any public benefit. So where it really creates high risks, we should forbid it and not just try to make it a little bit more ethical. And where it doesn't entail very high risk, but it creates, it has no public value and creates mostly profits for the companies, then some of the profits need to come back to the people and communities that create the data in the first place. So these are the main pillars of data solidarity. So let me emphasize that this is really about preventing, mitigating harm at the same time supporting data use where it's likely to create public value. And it's not against business at all. It's against large corporations that, um, that, that, that make obscene profits without you know, giving anything back. Just, this is what it is against. It's not against the small businesses that provide services to our communities. And the last point is that when, when I was talking, maybe you were thinking, okay, but what is public value? Um, my colleague um, Salim El-Sayed um, and I, we are now developing, together with other colleagues, a public value assessment tool. Um, so we're working on this at the moment. This will be an online tool that helps to assess the public value of specific instances of data use. So we have a lot of ideas about how data, how the public value of data use should be assessed. It's not binary like public interest, it's not, yes, it's in the public interest, or no, it's not. Um, it's really a, a weighing of the risks that data use poses and the way in which data use benefits people, future generations, communities, without entailing undue risks for individuals and groups. So as we progress with this work, we will keep everyone who wants to be up to date on this public value assessment tool. Great. Barbara, I listened to the episode of the podcast Science of Policy, in which you talk briefly about possible misuses of solidarity. How can we, as a society, misuse solidarity? Yeah, so when solidarity is used with the intention to exclude rather than include, when, for example, politicians say, 
as happened in my, my own country, we have to look after our fellow Austrians first, right? Um, why? Why in a pandemic should we now differentiate between Austrians and non-Austrians? It just, or other politicians are using solidarity in the same manner to exclude rather than include, to exclude women or to exclude other genders, to exclude minorities, whatever. That is a very problematic mobilization of solidarity. Now, during the pandemic so far, and this is something that I've learned from our research partners in our interview in, in our interview study, many people felt that solidarity was always used to ask things from them. Hold your things together, hold it together. We have to get through this. Look after your neighbors, look after your communities, look after the vulnerable. Um, get vaccinated, do this, do that. So there's nothing wrong with those individual things. And obviously looking after each other and getting vaccinated is all very important. But many people felt there was nothing coming back. So solidarity was used, used as a stick to beat them all the time. And the people that asked for solidarity, the governments, they were not enacting solidarity themselves. They were not sharing vaccines with other countries. They were not sharing sometimes other scarce goods with people and countries that needed them even more. Um, they were not supporting psychologically and socially and economically vulnerable people enough. They were not strengthening institutional solidarity. So solidarity requires, it needs some kind of indirect reciprocity to work. You know, not that kind of tit for tat, but people will stop enacting solidarity if they feel that they only ever ask to do it and nobody supports them or nobody supports other people. It's only they who should support other people. So this is what we mean when we talk about a misuse of solidarity. In this case, the we is the European Group on Ethics. We have made this um, argument in our statement that was published in November. Barbara, in your opinion, what are for you the main challenges for more solidarity in Europe today? Well, this is a very big question. Huh? So I'll, I'll try to be brief because we could otherwise go on for another hour to discuss this. Um, it's really about creating stronger institutionalized solidarity, more solidaristic institutions, more support for people. Um, we have seen also in the pandemic so far that those societies that have strong support systems, good healthcare, education, wage replacement systems, that those societies tend to get through crisis better. Also, it's very important in the name of solidarity to abolish poverty because the single biggest risk in any crisis is poverty. The same people are hit hardest and hit first over and over by the secondary and by the primary effects of a crisis. So this is something we should have learned from previous crises. It's not a very sexy message. It's not new, but it's even more important now. And it goes against the grain of what some governments like to do, you know, quote unquote, saving money. Governments do certainly not really save money if they don't spend it on people, but that's something that they don't want to hear. Or, you know individual responsibility for risks. But we've seen in this ongoing pandemic, and we see it with climate change, that individuals cannot mitigate those risks. It, it requires structural responses. So this is the biggest challenge. To close the episode, I would like to ask you a question that was sent to us by a listener of the podcast. 
Can solidarity and pharmaceutical monopoly coexist? <laughs> yeah, they can coexist in different uh, domains, yes. But when we talk about vaccine equity, then solidarity would require that access to vaccines is not a matter of what country you were born in and how much you can pay. So in that sense, it can't coexist. But of course, it's still possible for solidarity to, to be enacted in other domains. But in this particular case, solidarity would require that access to vaccine is not a matter of, 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 of geographical location and ability to pay. It's also a matter of justice and of solidarity. Thank you, Barbara, for expanding our understanding of solidarity and sharing about your research. Thank you for having me, Jogo. It was really a pleasure to be here. Thank you and all the best. In the next episode, we will talk to Alexe Savic from Serbia about solidarity with and within the LGBTQI plus community. This is a podcast of Salto European Solidarity Corps Research Center produced by Instituto Now. For more information and resources on solidarity and the course, go to talkingsolidarity.eu. The team song Solidarity Unifies Us is composed and sung by Polagers. The episode was mixed by Simon Aftalion and hosted by Diogo Pires. The artwork was created by Ina Gouveia. How I love to share